Welcome to The Well Podcast. We pray that this message ministers to you and blesses you as you listen. in worship. Is that okay? Can I say that, Becky? Um, and, um, and it was in that song, the, the, the verse in the song says, fire and wind, come and do it again. And I thought, what are they talking about? And it occurs to me that in this song, that's the Acts 2 moment. That's when the, the Holy Spirit came in as a mighty rushing wind, or they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and they saw these flames of fire on all the people there. And I was thinking about it. As we're singing that, are we really declaring that over ourselves? And, and, it's, and it's one thing to come in and sing the song, and it's got a nice melody, and it's a nice word. It's an entirely different thing when that gets down into your gut, into your heart, and it transforms your life. And then what really caught my attention was the next one. Because last time I was on the stage and spoke, I talked about Shechaniah, whose name is just fun to say. But he, he was the gatekeeper uh, at the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the second temple. Um, and he was the one that, that he's the only guard keeper mentioned in Zechariah chapter 3. Now, how many of y'all know when you're the only one mentioned, it's either a good thing or a bad thing? Okay? Yeah, all y'all nervous laughing because, you know, you've been there. But it, the, the lyric in the song this morning says, open the gates, let heaven on in. And I had to think, well, what gates are we talking about? And it's the gate to our heart. It's the same symbolism we saw last time I spoke. And we have to open the gates of our heart to let heaven, let his presence in, let him come and transform us. And then it talks about uh, his presence filling the room. And we can sing that song and we can think about this room that we're all seated in. Or we can think about the room that's within us, where that Holy Spirit's going to come in and reside in us. And then we sung some other lyrics there, you're all I want, come and fill this room, fill me to overflowing. And if you take all those things and you take it uh, much like we saw uh, last time I spoke, and I'll talk a bit about it again, is that a lot of times you see stuff corporately that then is a parallel to what happens to you individually. And so do we want them to fill this room? Absolutely. I want lost loved ones to come in here, strangers, uh, people who've, who've just, just come in here to get out of the cold and don't know any better. I want his presence to fill the room and sweep over them and just wash over them. And for them at the end of the day to go, I don't know what it was, but I felt something. So that was worship for me this morning. And then I couldn't help some of the reading I, I did. And this is not my message. This is all just extra that God was just revealing to me in worship. Um, I, I met with a friend that, that um, he, he's a teacher. If, if y'all know anything about the fivefold uh, ministry, um, you got the apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, and pastor. And if you know anything about teachers, they're all about getting into the word. They're, they're, not, they're not about seeking heaven and that kind of stuff. They're in what, what did the God tell us? He wrote it down. It must be important, right? 
And, and so I, I met with a friend uh, a week or two ago, and, and they've, they've pretty well written off, like, worship completely, right? They, they want harps to, to, to be plucking, and that's about all the music they want, right? And, of course, I, I look in the Word, and it says heaven is roaring. There's nothing there that heaven is going to be like this tranquil, peaceful, you know, heart playing, you know, little delicate angels flying around. Heaven is going to be this ruckus of praise that's erupting from all the inhabitants of, of the kingdom. And I, and I think if we have ears that we can put our fingers in when we get there, that might be normal, right? And people are going to say, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. I want to get used to it here. It's, the word says to bring heaven to earth. I want, I want to enjoy that same level of worship and intimacy that God had writes about in his book here on earth. And then when we get to heaven, we'll be able to look around the people their ears and go, you'll get used to it. We've been there. We grew up with this, right? Oh, goodness, Lord. So good. Um, so I don't know where to go with this one, but he laid it on my heart, so I'm just going to spit it back out, and, and hopefully this, this finds someone. But, you know, we talked about gatekeepers last time, and, uh, and I did a little more reading on that and, um, and learned some very interesting things that, that probably is going to clash with, with what you knew and classically grew up with. Just a little. No big theological interruptions, but just a little bit. Um, but in the temple... When, when David brought the ark back in and he set up the tent in, in, in the temple, um, David assigned 212 temple guards. There was 212 people assigned to guard the temple. Now, that doesn't include the people outside the temple that were guarding the, the city, that were guarding the encampments. These are 212 people assigned to the temple. And so I, I found that was interesting. And that also doesn't include the, the gatekeepers. So as they built the, the city around the, the temple and made a, made a secure place for them to live and, and in their presence, they had 212 guards in the temple. They had guards in the, in the encampment and in the... Um, in the area surrounding them, up on the walls, and as the gates got built, they assigned gatekeepers, and we talked about that last time. They even had gatekeepers at the temple, believe it or not. Uh, the temple had doors on it. Um, but what I realized in this, and what he showed me this morning, was that just because something gets in the gate doesn't mean it gets into the temple. Okay? So I, I think what that means and what he's revealing to me is that, is that in this world, in this life, we struggle with temptation. And, and if you don't, you got something figured out that I don't. Okay? But we're going to struggle with temptations. We're going to be tempted, and sometimes those things are, are, are just going to lead to compromise. And so here's, here's what he showed me this morning, is just because it, it is compromise in your flesh doesn't mean it gets into your temple, okay? There ought to be some conviction. There ought to be those temple guards that are living within you, if you will. If you can see the parallel here, right? There's that temple guard in here that says, you know what? You shouldn't have done that. 
And that conviction ought to, you know, enter into your soul. And that's the temple guards surrounding the temple of your heart that are screaming out to get rid of this thing. Now, the other parallel I saw is you got to get rid of it, right? You've got to repent, go back to God, and then you've got to cleanse not the temple, right? Because the temple has been guarded. The temple's not defiled yet. But you've got to get rid of that, right? It's got to go out the dung gate, right? You've got you've to get that out of your life, out of your flesh. And so what he revealed to me this morning is that, that is, that's the ongoing thing that we live with. Paul talks about it in Romans, and he talks about um, how he desires to do right, he knows to do right, but yet he still falls, and he does wrong. And it's this constant battle in the flesh where the flesh wants to give in to these temptations and allow it into your flesh, but thank God that we have this Holy Spirit temple guard on the inside of us that won't let us live with that, that says, nope. Yeah, you gave into it. You made a mistake, and I'm here to, to, to scream on your ear on the inside and let you know that that's not good for you. And like Paul, we can say to ourselves, I strive to do what's right. I know to do what's right, and yet I give in to these temptations. And we can work day by day to get rid of those things. All right. So that's your fresh rhema word for the day. Now, um, what I want to talk about today, or what I had prepared, is in Nehemiah chapter 4. So I've made a lot of progress since last time I was up here. I'm in the next chapter. Um, so if you will, let's stand and let's read, um, if I can get my thing to respond here. That's not, not cool when it doesn't do what I want. Let's, uh, let's stand together and we'll read Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And if you've got your Bible or your app or your tablet or whatever mechanism that you have to get to it, I will delay and keep blabbing at the mouth for just a moment. Because some of y'all learn by listening, some of y'all learn by seeing, some of y'all need to put your finger on the page and touch every word in order to get that word off the page and into your heart. So if you're following along with me and you found Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, say, I got it. All right. In my Bible, the, the top of chapter 4 says, enemies oppose the rebuilding. Verse 1, it says, Sambalat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Amorite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. And then in verse 4 it says, Then I prayed, Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. Heavenly Father God, as we release your word today, Father, I pray that it finds tender hearts. I pray that it finds fertile ground for the seed of your word to fall into. And Lord, may it be cultivated and grown into a mighty thing. So Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So just to, to put a little context on, on what we have here, uh, Nehemiah um, was, uh, was in charge of, of rebuilding the wall. He had, uh, it had been put on his heart um, to uh, go back to Jerusalem and help in the efforts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Um, he had gone and gotten permission from the Assyrian king at the time, and even got a letter, uh, a permission slip, if you will, uh, to go and harvest timber and get the supplies and things to go back to Jerusalem and, and help in the rebuilding effort. And what he found when he got there was that the, the walls were indeed in such disrepair. Um, the gates were broken, the, the walls had been uh, uh, broke down, um, they had been set on fire, parts of it had been set on fire, and then he found it in ruins. Um, and Nehemiah, just like we do, when God lays something upon our heart, found resistance to what he was doing. And so chapter 3 tells us kind of a summary of, of the work that went on and, and how they went gate by gate. And we talked about that last time and, and how there's symbolism in each of the gates. And there's this wonderful story of redemption as you travel around the city. And in chapter four, it gives a little more details of the rebuilding efforts. And it, and it takes us a, a little bit level deeper in the story. So last time we were at 30,000 feet and now we're, now we're at maybe 10,000 feet. Um, but we get more details here about the rebuilding in chapter four. And so what we, what we find in these first four verses is that there is this character, Sanballat, who is uh, one of the leaders or kings of the surrounding kingdoms uh, that sees the work going on in Jerusalem, knows the history of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, and, and he's aggravated that the Jews are being allowed to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city walls. And so, uh, again, I want to pause for a moment and, and again, that keep in mind that as we, as we look at these scriptures is that, is that the, what they're experiencing, again, as a people, corporately, um, this resistance that they're, they're having to the, the work of the kingdom that they've been asked to do is very much uh, runs a parallel, again, to our lives and the work that God has called all of us to do, each one individually, different assignments for each person, um, but yet still all working for the same kingdom, all working uh, to, to, to come together with all of our different efforts to bring the kingdom to here on earth. Um, those, those same things we see that attack the Israel people corporately, again, we see in parallel to us individually. So, so what we see is, is Nehemiah facing uh, this opposition. Um, but the, the neat thing about it was that um, he knew what he was called to do. He knew the reason he was there. He had prayed ahead of time, and he was on assignment from heaven, and he knew it. And this changes everything. This changes everything. So, so as we look at that in our individual lives, and, and we can be challenged sometime to know kind of the assignment of the day. And even there's probably 
parts of our lives where we don't know what the purpose is of this season or the assignment in this season. But know that, that God has called each of us, each of us to a work in the kingdom. And for some of us, that is being an evangelist to friends, neighbors, coworkers. For, for others of us, it, it might be organizing. For, for others of us, it, it might be to intercede in prayer. Any number of things are kingdom things. And then when we come together as a corporate body in this room, vacuuming the floors is kingdom work. If we want someone to, to be on their knees and really interceding for God, we don't want them to find sticks and, and trash and things up here that are going to be distractions. So vacuuming the floor can be kingdom work, right? Dusting can be kingdom work. Any of the things that at home are chores and labors, when you do it unto God and for the kingdom, become kingdom work. So, 1 John 3.8 says, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And if the devil is the prince of this world, and we're come on assignment from the Lord of heaven to destroy the works of the devil with Christ then we can expect resistance and opposition. So the other thing I saw that if Christ, I'm sorry, if, if the devil really is the prince of the world, he's got everything to lose. And by us advancing the kingdom, we are slowly eroding his hold on this world. And that, and that is our job is to put him out of business, to shrink his kingdom so small that he becomes irrelevant. And so, so how many of y'all have had the experience where, where you have one of those encounters where, you, where, where whatever that is, you're reaching out in faith, Joanne, you're reaching out in faith, you've given more than you normally give, you've, you've, you've met someone, you've talked to someone, you, you've donated, whatever it is, you've spent extra time at the church, right? Whatever it is, you've given up something to God, and then lo and behold, it feels like you just get attacked. Well, praise God. That means you're doing something right. And I think the word even encourages us. When those trials come, when those testings come, that, that we should, uh, I mean, the words are escaping me right now, but, but we can take peace in the fact that if we're advancing God's kingdom and we meet that resistance, then it means we've got the enemy on the run. He's had to come and somehow block and somehow come and, and go against what you are trying to do, the advance that you're trying to make. If you're a war fan, if you've watched any documentaries and that kind of thing, you will always see that, that whenever you're trying to advance and take land, once you get, once you get that, that beachhead, if you think about Normandy and that kind of thing, the first one was to get a beachhead. Right? Get enough land that we can get equipment in there, that we can get enough troops in there and that kind of stuff, where we can get a hold on the land. Right? And then that gives us a place to funnel our, our resources through. It gives us a, a break in the lines where we can rush through now and we can, we can take the land. Well, of course, what do you expect the enemy to do? You attack, they counterattack. And so, and so it's not a complicated thing. It's not a deep theological thing we're seeing here. But it is, it is a reality of the Christian life. There's a reality of there's, there's, there's two kingdoms that are warring over the earth. There's kingdoms warring over your soul. 
And that's why temptations come. That's why trials come. That's why all these things get tested and you have these temptations that draw on your flesh. And so we see some of that resistance here in the text. See, Sanballat was very angry and he began to mock the Jews. So now the cool thing here is is that this gives us some insight into the schemes of the enemy. See, in this case, the Lord had already blessed him with authority from the earthly king of Assyria. And so he couldn't do, Sanballat couldn't physically go and attack without also offending the Assyrian king who was king over the land at the time. And so so while he was on assignment from the Lord, he also had worldly permission to be there. So, So Sanballat's hands were a little bit tied, and so what does he turn to? He turns to mocking. And I like how it's kind of interesting. It says, um, he said he flew into a rage. So he's more than a little aggravated at this point. And he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers. Apparently, the Sumerian army officers weren't his friends, but still were an audience there with him. And so, and so what you see here, he's trying to incite the crowd is what I see here. He's trying to get other people on board with this aggravation he's feeling to turn more people against them. And then I like what it says here, or I don't like it, but I recognize what it says. Sam Ballot says, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? And so the, the first thing we see here is attacks on your personal integrity. Right? And, and, the, and the bad part about this, when you and I experience this, when, when we're doing something and, and then we get ridiculed or, or she's not capable of doing that. Uh, I remember my wife one time, um, and this was 20, uh, no, not quite that old. When she started homeschooling, Nathaniel, who's 21. I'm doing some fast math up here, y'all. The wheels are a little rusty. But I remember that, that when she said she was going to homeschool, and it wasn't as common 16 years ago, that there were, there were people that said, well, are you a teacher? Are you qualified? And it's like, well, no, but graduated high school. I think I can teach first grade. Pretty sure that if I had to do first grade all over again right now, I'd ace it, right? Um, and so we see these, these personal attacks against your situation, you individually. And it also attacks what you've come from. And so here it says they were, he's criticizing, he says, poor, feeble Jews. None of those are meant as compliments. And so the Jews, if you remember at this point, were a conquered people. So at some point they were overpowered feeble. They were ridiculed Jews, right? And they're poor because they've, they've been a, a captive people for 70 years. And so he's ridiculing him and saying, who, who are these weaklings that are coming here trying to do this? Who do they think they are? And you see this attack on them personally. And it's an, and it's an attack to try to get at them and, and tear them down and to um, have them lose confidence in what they're doing and lose confidence in themselves so that, so that there's a mental game here where they're like, yeah, well, who are we, right? 
Because the thing about it is there's just enough truth in these criticisms, right? That if you let your mind get away from you, that you would begin to agree with these. It doesn't matter that they're called to this work, that the king has released them to return to Jerusalem, that they were qualified two weeks earlier when the king released them and called them into this work. All of that stuff ends up getting pushed to the back of their heads, and all they can hear is the words ringing in their ears about the criticism that's in front of them. And the same thing can happen to you when you get in that situation where you are faced with that ridicule, is that you can forget how you got there. You can forget all of the testing and trials that you've had to overcome. And, and in kingdom work, you can forget who ordered your steps to get you there. And you can forget who has you standing there in front of this opposition, whatever it is. And then he attacks their confidence directly by saying, do they think? Like, what are y'all thinking? Y'all aren't bright enough. You're not smart enough. Y'all don't have the training. You don't have the ability. Who do you think you are? You can't, can't build it. And even his little right-hand man talks about a fox running across the wall, which I particularly despise Tobiah after reading this. And I'm sorry if you have kids named Tobiah. Again, might not be in a, a good choice because Tobiah is the yes man. Um, uh, and, and I think Becky used this example once before, but, but y'all remember the cartoon where you got the big bulldog and he has this little like chihuahua that goes along beside him. Yeah, Butch, yeah, whatever you say, Butch. And I feel like Tobiah is this character in the story where Sandballot's just mouthing off and Tobiah's over there, yeah, get him, get him, yeah, I agree, yeah, yeah, they, their socks stink, yeah. And anyway, so Tobias just... He's this annoying character that shows up in the scripture here. All right, so he attacks not only who they are and what they've come from. But he attacks their confidence. So who do they think they are, right? Who do they think they're not qualified, they're not good enough, they're not, not skilled enough, they're not strong enough, right? They're not, they're not, they're not, right? And you can, you can get, fall into the woe is me. Right? And you can begin to believe these things, that I, I'm, I'm not capable. Well, frankly, I can tell you I'm probably not qualified to be on this stage with a microphone in my hand speaking to all y'all. But God. But God. But God has laid it upon my heart. He has he is knitted his assignment in my soul. It, it is my purpose and my all to, to be up here and share this rhema word that he reveals in the scripture. It, it's a part of my DNA now to, to make sure that, that things are taken care of and the lights stay on and things go well here. Because I recognize the call on my life to, to be a, a shepherd here for this flock and, and, and to do what I can to care for each and every one of you, your families, your loved ones, the part of your family that's not here, that we are in earnest prayer and desire to see them here. And so when the opposition comes, it, it can get to me. And I, I'm, there's flesh here too. And it can be tough. I can go through tough seasons. I've been overwhelmed these last couple weeks. And I'll just be transparent and honest with you. And some of it is here. Some of it is the fact that I still work for this company across town and that has been... Trying my patience. So in the back of my head, I'm also thinking that, you know, um, there's a story about the, 
Um, transition, I'll just shorten it. I'll say transition, uh, friction precedes transition, right? Um, and I so well, I wonder if some of what I'm going through isn't that friction. Isn't that friction where um, maybe I'm supposed to find something that I can devote more time here and less time there, more energy here, less energy there. Um, so if you're going to pray for me, pray that I understand and, uh, and have wisdom as far as that goes. So then he, he attacks the confidence. Do they think, oh, and I like this one. It says, do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Well, now they've taken that ridicule and that confidence just a step forward, further, and now they're attacking the God that they're serving. Are they just going to, just a few sacrifices, that's all y'all got? Is God really going to be happy with that? Is he really going to be happy with just that little bit? Do y'all really think that's doing anything? And you can see the, the aggravation, the frustration he's trying to, trying to put over them there. And this piece is the oldest trick in the book. It's the oldest trick in the book. Is God really going to accept that? Did God really say that? You can go back to Adam and Eve, and what, what is the deception in the garden? He says, did God say, right? He says, are you sure, right? He's, he's sowing those seeds of doubt, and he says, has God said? Has God said? And so much like this, he, he kind of ridicules these few sacrifices, and I'm going to guess that Sam Ballot and, and God really probably didn't have a good relationship at this point because I think he'd be supporting the Jews if he did. And so this, this ridicule, again, stems back to stuff in their past, right? Jews are a conquered people. They were run out of here before. We'll run them out of here again. They're nothing to be worried about. They're nothing, right? And stuff from our past can follow us into our future. But thank God his mercies are new every day. And thank God our past doesn't define our future. We have an opportunity today to renew our mind, to renew our thinking, to change the direction of our life. And that's going to come from repentance. Repentance purely means a change of direction. I, I was going away from God, and now I repent and turn to God. And now I'm going the right direction. And the problem is that life comes along and you're like squirrel, right? And now you're going the wrong direction again. And you're going to miss it if you're not careful. And so there's this, this diligence that we have to have. And that's where those, those temple guards come in again to go, hey, you're, you're straying off the path a little bit. We need to, need to correct a little bit here. But he attacks their confidence. And it's the oldest trick in the book. Paul and Timothy writing to the church at Philippi says, I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. So there should be a confidence, an unshakable, undeniable confidence that we have. That if, if we are confident that God has put us on assignment, we are confident that we are walking in his will and in his way, and that we are, are completing the task that he has put before us, there ought to be a confidence within us that says, it's not me, it's him. 
And so, and so we need to be confident because if he called you to it, he will get you through it. And that's what we're seeing here in this, in this with, with Nehemiah. And, and the cool thing about it is, I'm getting a little ahead, but the cool thing about it is I, I love how he reacts. I love how he reacts. And so the, the last one I'll point out here is, is the, the, the last one. I think it's the last one. It may not be the last one. I bite my words. All right, there's two more. The next to last one. All right, so he, he twists your purpose. He twists, he twists the why, right? He, he shifts it from, he tries to take their attention off the fact that they're building a temple, they're doing God's work, right? And he shifts it to these few sacrifices, like that's not enough, right? When the few sacrifices are not really the end goal. Their goal is not to play, make a place where they can have a few sacrifices. Their goal is to make a place where God will inhabit it, where they can go and meet with God, where they can, can encounter his presence and his power, and, and where they can uh, come to know him. And he tries to, to get their head off of that and say, all oh, these few sacrifices, these little things that you're doing, like it's not enough, Right? And again, he attacks what they're doing. And mind you, uh, hopefully in their eyes, they know and they're seeing the long game. Hopefully they're seeing the big picture about what they're doing and they can just brush this off. But, but the enemy will come in to attack your why. Why are you really doing this? I can look around and I can, I can say, like, Lucas, why do you play the piano? Right? And if he goes, it's because it sounds pretty. Well, you can play lots of instruments and sound pretty. But if the why is, it, it's to usher in the presence of the Lord, right? It, it, it's to provide the melody underneath the singing where everyone can raise their voice to heaven. It changes things. So he'll, he'll attack the why behind what you're doing. And then the last insult he hurls at him, he calls, you know, what are they going to do with this rubbish heap? Really, and, that's, and that's really meant to attack your situation, your significance. Right? If you're, if you're starting with nothing, what are you going to build out of that? Right? That's what he's saying. And we probably have situations in our life where we, where we might receive ridicule like that. Like, they'll, they'll never be good at sports. They, they can't run. Right? Um, right. She's not very organized. She'll she'll never be good in the office. Right. And these are the kind of ridicule that that we'll run into here in in our lives. And again, it, it it's it's to it's to try to tear us down and and lose focus of why we're there. Lose focus behind the the bigger picture of what we're doing. And I think one thing I need to add in there, because a lot of people will struggle with this, because they'll, they'll say, oh, that family that they come from, they'll never amount to much. They're going to be just like their daddy, that, that alcoholic, couldn't keep a job, never amounted to nothing. They're going to they're do the same thing. And this is where we've got to say, you know what? That might be where I came from. That might be the example that, that someone left for me. But if I can keep my eyes on heaven, 
if I can recognize the value that God sees in me, if I can see that value in me, and I can, I can make a change, right? I can choose not to do those things. And then the enemy will bring it up, and he'll ridicule you with it, and he'll say, oh, it's just normal. Your whole family's that way. It doesn't mean that you need to grab that and hang on to it. If anything, if you recognize that, 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 that the, the path that's been blazed by earlier generations is not a path you want to be on, get off. Stop. All that stuff that you look at, that's just part of your growing up or whatever, when you look at some of those things and you're a little conflicted, you need to take a step back and go, what's normal here? Because what you grew up with might have been normal in your family, but might not be good for you. And so there's, there's a, an examination that we need to, to look at. So verse 4, Nehemiah's response. So despite all the ridicule, despite all the words that he's heard, all the reports he's, he's seen, despite all of the, the enemy activity that he might have witnessed going on around the city, this is his response. Then I prayed. Oh, I hear all this nonsense going on. I hear the bad reports. I hear how they're plotting against me. I hear how they're ridiculing people. I can see how it's affecting the people around me. And I'm not going to try to fix it first, but I'm going to pray first. And again, you have to know, you have to know that if God has you on assignment, God has you in his hands. If you're a blood-bought child of God, God knows, he knows so much better how to get you out of your situation, how to navigate you through the rough waters. Then I prayed. He says, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. So all that ridicule and where all that comes from, all of that past that they're trying to heap onto our present and want us to carry into the future, Lord, just let it all fall back on them. Let them, let them take, have a taste of their own medicine. Not a lot of compassion from Nehemiah here. But he compels God. He says, don't ignore their guilt. Don't ignore their guilt. We, we, we've tried to talk to him. We've tried to give the best example we can, and all we're getting this ridicule. What more can we do? God, it's in your hands. It says, don't blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger. So you see, the, 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 the twist in the story right here is this whole time, Nehemiah is hearing all these insults. He's hearing all this ridicule. He's hearing the mocking. He's hearing all this tearing him down, and he deflects all of it. Because he has confidence that God put me here. God has me standing here in this place. And so if you're ridiculing me, you're ridiculing him. And so say what you want. I'll take it up with the guy that you're really ridiculing. And I'll see what he has to say about it. But he says, don't blot out their sins for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. And so God puts Nehemiah first. His flesh might be crawling. He might be so aggravated. We don't get a good indication here. Although his, his prayer kind of indicates that he's like, just throw it back on him. 
Not gently, but heap it on them. Right? He, he doesn't have that compassion and love in his voice here. But he seeks God first, and he lets God fight his battles. God is, is much better than we are, sees more than we see, knows more than we know. And if God is being mocked, he's probably going to respond. Now, the interesting thing is, is that God often responds in ways that we don't anticipate. And sometimes we look at it and go, well, how did that happen? And we can see God's hand on it. And we often see those things looking back on something. It's very hard in the moment to see God's hand, except in some very spectacular ways. But oftentimes we can look back and see that his hand either was on us, guiding us, leading us through all those things, or that God had somehow intervened and fought battles for us that we didn't think we could win. So again, all of their work and the builder's work were all working for God. And so if they're ridiculing that work, they're ridiculing the people, they're, they're levying that ridicule against God. So, again, in our lives, if you're about the Father's business, whether that's on your job, with your family, whether you have your own business or whether you're just at the checkout at Walmart and you're ministering, you're sharing the gospel, you're buying napkins and tissues. If you're about the Father's business, and you begin to hear the mocking, and hear the attacks. First of all, be confident. Be confident that you are there on purpose. Be confident that God has ordered your steps. He has placed you. He has commissioned you. He has called you to be his child, his servant. And that if you're in the midst of doing that work, that the ridicule isn't necessarily against you, but it's against him. And so we need to be confident in whose we are, be confident in, in our role, our purpose, our identity in Christ, our calling, be confident in our God, whose good thoughts outnumber the grains of sand. I like to say that if God is an infinite God and he thinks about you a little bit, well, a little bit times an infinite God is an infinite amount. And if God is thinking good thoughts towards you, even a little bit, he is infinitely on your mind, or you are infinitely on his mind. Because that's how good God is. And so if you ever feel that ridicule, if you ever feel like, you're being attacked. Know that God has equipped you, he has placed you, and that you are there on assignment. And again, if Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and we are partners with Christ, 
in two things. One, we can expect opposition. But we also have a tremendous ally that comes in times of need. That we only need to call on his name. We only need to whisper his name and watch him come. And he'll fight our battles. So what I want you to take away from today is just to be aware of the enemy's tactics. Learn to recognize them. Learn to recognize them for what they are. And when you can do that, you can separate out that, that reaction in your flesh that wants to get aggravated, who wants to get combative or defensive or wants to get hurt. And you can separate it and go, you're, you're attacking the Lord. I'm just here as a servant, just here as his representative. Then allows you just to brush off some of the insults and some of the attacks. And as Nehemiah did, go back to the Lord in prayer. And ask for wisdom on next steps. Now, if you look at the end of, of Nehemiah, and you kind of see the end game of what he's doing, is that the walls get rebuilt. The gates get rebuilt. The Jews gather back in Jerusalem. Despite the ridicule, despite the harassment, despite all of the plans of the enemy, God favored what they were doing. And at the end, the people turned to God and fulfilled the promise that if his people will repent and turn to him, that he'll be their Lord. We want to thank you for listening in today. At The Well, we believe in cultivating a culture for more of God. Wherever you are in your relationship and walk with God, we believe that there is always more for those who diligently seek after Him. If you would like to find out more, please check out our website at thewellmichigan.com and connect with us on social media.